Today's reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, well, welcome again to Redeemer Church. I'm so glad that you guys are here. This is our sec- or our first Sunday after launch, and so I am still excited. We have a few less people than last week, but hey, that's totally fine. I am still excited to uh, just be here with you guys to dig into His Word. And, and as uh, I don't know if we said this during the, during the worship service or anything, but, but the reason why we are here our, our mission, the, the goal of Redeemer Church is to glorify God by shining the light of Jesus. That's, that's, that's our mission. That's our goal. That's why we exist. And, and one of the ways that we do this is by preaching his word. Now, last week was our official launch, as I said, and we wanted to begin the church by seeking to answer, I would I would argue, probably the most important question that could ever be asked. And this, this one question, and the answer to it, is what Christianity rises or falls on. And that, that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And now, we don't want to answer that question flippantly, right? I said this last week. We don't, we don't want to be flippant with that answer. We don't want to answer it with simply regurgitating what the culture says or who the culture says Jesus is. We don't want to do that. And the reason why we don't want to do that is because our culture and, and cultures all throughout centuries have warped and changed the real image of Jesus Christ, and so we don't want to do that. We want to, we want to look at the source, right? We want to look at the source. We want to go to, to the original source telling us who Jesus is. And so we decided that we wanted to walk through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' ministry, so that we can, we can clearly see who Jesus is. Not who, not who we want Jesus to be, but who Jesus actually is. And so we're going to be, again, uh, continuing our walk through this Gospel of Mark. But before we dive back in, let us first pray that the Holy Spirit guides us this morning. Father, I just, Lord, I just, I just echo the prayer, Lord, that, uh, that Ethan has already prayed. God, that, Lord, that you are just present here this morning, God. Lord, that your spirit is, is guiding us in our study of your word. Lord, that, that you remove me out of the equation, Lord, and so that, that your spirit can just be clearly seen and clearly heard, God, through the expounding of your holy word. 
And God, I just pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, last week, we learned that there were Christians in the first century, the very, the very first century of the church, who underwent this, this heinous and horrific persecution under the emperor named Nero. And Mark, in order to encourage these Christians, he decided to actually interview one of the apostles, one of the very men who sat at the feet of Jesus the Apostle Peter, and he compiled all of the accounts, all the things that, that Peter could remember about Jesus, and he put them into this book so that he could then hand to these Christians who were suffering this awful persecution in Rome in order to encourage them. And we saw that Mark begins this gospel, this, this account of the good news of Jesus with God keeping his promise. God keeping his promise to send a herald, a forerunner, that would come into the world to make way, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And this promise was kept. This promise was, was kept in John the Baptist. This, this wild man. I've been watching through this uh, show. Kayla and I watched this show. I don't know if, if how many of you have heard about it. But it's called The Chosen. It's basically just the story of Jesus' life. But, but in, uh, all throughout this, this show, uh, John the Baptist is, what is he often called? Crazy John or something like that. And the reason why he's called Crazy John is because he, he comes literally out of the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, dressed in a shirt made out of camel hair with just some random leather belt tied around his waist. But he was the one who was to prepare the way, to make way the, the path of the coming Messiah, the one who John himself said is mightier than him, the one who would give the true baptism to all believers when he would send his spirit to live inside of them. Now one Bible scholar that, that I just love and have learned so much from. He, he did a, a simple exercise with his audience when he was actually teaching on this passage. And uh, what he did was, it was, it was just simple. He was just basically saying, I want you to imagine as if you were there, right? Imagine that you, were, you yourself were in the sandals of those who were standing in the wilderness, waiting eagerly for your chance to be baptized by John the Baptist, and as you got closer and closer, you didn't, you didn't quite yet make it to the, the edge of the Jordan River before you saw John cast his gaze up from the person that he had just dipped into the water and brought back up. And John's eyes were transfixed on, on someone who was walking through the crowd. And you turned to see whose attention, uh, whose attention stole, or sorry, who John was paying attention to. I'm really struggling my words here. Who John was paying attention to. He turned to look at that guy. And as you look at him, as you look at this man who's, who's walking through the crowd to John, you, you see this guy who, who doesn't really look like anything. He doesn't have a, a, a really all that beautiful of a face. He's not wearing anything that is, is remarkable. But the way that John looks at him, it was as if a king had appeared. And this man, 
walking in the front of the line, walking to the front of the line. He, he ends up wading into the water, going to John. And we're actually, we're actually told in Matthew and John's gospel that when he got close, that when, that when this man got close to John, John let out this ecstatic shout saying, Behold the Lamb of the God, or the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John says that this is the one that you have been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is who is mightier than I, the one who I am unworthy to untie the sandals of. This is, this is him. He's made it here. And then suddenly, this man that you see passing through the crowd becomes, becomes more than a man. He actually becomes your, your living hope. And as he begins to wade into the water, making his way to John, he says something completely unexpected. He says, John, I want you to baptize me. I want you to baptize me. Could you imagine being John in that moment? The Word made flesh, God Himself, is asking John to baptize him. Well, we're told again in the Gospel of Matthew that John the Baptist, he, he looked at Jesus and essentially said, Jesus, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I just got done telling these people that, that I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals and you're wanting me to baptize you? I need, I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing? You're messing everything up. Now, <clears throat> John's confusion with this whole situation I think was, was probably twofold. You see, it, it seemed wrong theologically, to John the Baptist. It seemed, it seemed just wrong. You see, the, the baptism that John was offering was one of repentance of sin, right? That's what we learned last week. So why would Jesus, the sinless and spotless lamb, need to be baptized? The one who, who came to take away the sins of the world. Why would he need this repentance or this baptism of the repentance of sin? So to John, it made no sense theologically whatsoever. Now the second, the second reason why John probably did not like what was happening at this moment was, was likely the optics of it all, how it looked. As I said earlier, John just finished telling this entire crowd that had gathered that Jesus was again the one whom they have all been waiting centuries for, and to see him baptized could ruin everything. It could possibly make them think, wait, the Messiah is, is a sinner that needs to be baptized just like me? What? How could he, how could he save us from our sins when it looks like he, he has his own sins that he needs to be saved from? It made no sense. It looked bad. But look at Jesus' response. If you have your Bibles, turn them actually to Matthew chapter 3, the very first book of the New Testament. In Matthew 3, 15, Jesus responds to John's hesitancy by just simply saying, let it be so now. 
Let it be so now. John, just, just let this happen. Let, let me worry about the theology of it all. I know you don't fully understand it right now, but let me worry about what people might think. Because you see, John, this must happen. This must happen to fulfill all righteousness. Now there's some somewhat ambiguous response that Jesus gave to the very hesitant John. Actually tells us a deep and profound truth about the fullness, the fullness of the gospel. If you were to ask most people in the church, and and honestly not even in the church, if you were just to ask most people in our society today, what did Jesus do for sinners? I think their response would, would make any Sunday school teacher pretty proud, right? Everybody somewhat knows this part. What did Jesus do for sinners? He died for them, right? He died for them. And that honestly would be the correct answer. That would only be half of the answer. It's only half of the answer. R.C. Sproul says that it actually was not enough for Christ to die for us. You see, at the cross, a, a great exchange took place where our sins were transferred to him. And then the the perfect obedience, also called his righteousness, was then transferred or credited to us. He took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. And in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice who could not only take our sins upon himself and therefore absorb the full wrath of God on our behalf that we definitely deserved, but who could then clothe us in his righteousness so that when God looks upon us on that day of judgment, he does not see our unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. In order for that to happen, he had to live the perfect life in obedience to God. He had to fulfill every single law that God gave to Israel, every single law that Israel broke, every single law that we ourselves have broken, he had to live a life of perfect righteousness, fulfilling, completing every single law, every single one. So you see, we didn't just need Jesus to die for us. We needed him to live for us, right? And this is what Jesus had in mind when he, told, or when he told John, suffer it now. John, suffer it now. Let it be so that I may fulfill the righteousness required for your full salvation. It is my task as the Messiah to obey every word, every command of Scripture. And even though I am not a sinner because the Father requires it of you, I must be baptized. If you are a believer right now who is is struggling to feel the love of God in your life for whatever reason, whether it be because of difficult life circumstances you find yourself in or perhaps you've, you've been out of church in the Christian community for a time, 
and you just, you just don't feel that love, you feel like you haven't experienced that love in a while, I encourage you to meditate on this fact. To meditate on this fact that Jesus did not only die for you, but he lived for you too. He, out of his own perfect free will, he, he chose to leave the throne room of heaven by which no other earthly palace could ever compare. He chose to leave there to come to come here, to come to this place, this broken world that's been broken by our own sinfulness. And he lived day in and day out in perfect obedience. In a time with no modern medicine or plumbing or technology that we take advantage of every single day, and he lived that perfect yet hard life, which ended in heartbreak and betrayal and his death. Not to show how much better he is than human beings, but so that he could give that perfect life over to us as a gift. To drape it over us like a robe. That is how much he loves you. Enough to not just die, but to live for you. And if you're an unbeliever who's, who's listening to this, who is, who is struggling also to feel the love of God, please, please know that that perfect life, that perfect life of Jesus that was demonstrated through His perfect obedience to the Father, even unto death, it can be yours. It can be yours as well. If you just but repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone. As we see in, in Mark 1, verse 9. And sorry we don't have the, the slides up. We had some technical difficulties, if you couldn't tell earlier. Paul, you didn't look like you didn't look awkward at all standing up there. You were totally fine. Just ignore the man behind the Our Values banner. <laughs> but as you see in Mark 1, verse 9, John eventually listened to Jesus' request. And though he didn't understand fully, he took Jesus and he baptized him. And a dramatic scene immediately unfolded. See, as, as soon as Jesus rose out of the waters of baptism, Mark tells us that the heavens were torn open. The heavens were, were torn asunder, some versions of the Bible say. I like that. And this tearing of the heavens is actually predicted all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, it says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. See, the prophet Isaiah, he was, he was pleading to God. To, to rend open the heavens and come down to restore Israel. Now, what, what is so great about that is that that was actually God's intention. God intended to do that. But, but not just Israel, not just ethnic Israel. That wasn't, that wasn't where God stopped. Instead, He wanted to restore a people to Himself from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. And at Jesus' baptism, you see that prophecy 
begin to be fulfilled as God tears open the heavens and God the Son has come down to begin to restore a people to Himself. Now, as Mark tells us that, that as the heavens are being torn open, God the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Now, this was important. What, what is actually happening here is that, that the Holy Spirit is anointing the human nature of Jesus. He is setting aside Jesus and He is empowering the human nature of Jesus. Remember that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And the Holy Spirit is anointing the human nature of God and empowering Him for His ministry. That's what's happening. You see, the miracles and the wonders that Jesus performed were not actually performed by the divine nature of Jesus, but by His human nature that was empowered by the Holy Spirit, which was given to Him at baptism. That's the importance of the Holy Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. And this actually, again, happens just as Isaiah prophesied when God was, was speaking through Isaiah, saying that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And then in verse 11, it's probably one of the most amazing things for the people who are actually there watching this entire scene unfold. But in verse 11, it says the crowd, uh, or sorry, it says in verse 11 that, that everyone around heard this booming voice of God the Father saying directly to Jesus that you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Could you imagine being in that crowd on that day, seeing the, the sky torn open, seeing the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and to, and to hear the actual voice of God, of God the Father, declaring that Jesus is exactly who Jesus says who He is, the Son of God. Now I'm sure like John, most people in the crowd probably had, had no idea what exactly was happening or the, or the significance of it all. But at that moment, the earthly ministry of Jesus had then been officially inaugurated. Now, after his baptism, we are told that in uh, Mark 1, verse 12, that immediately the Spirit that had just been given to Jesus, drives him deeper into the wilderness, where, as we're told in, again, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus fasts for 40 days. Now, 40 days is, is, is somewhat of a, a Jewish round number. It's, it's kind of equivalent of saying that Jesus fasted for many days, and so whether or not Jesus fasted for 39 days or 41 days, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that Jesus had abstained from eating any food for a great number of days, and as you can imagine, his physical body had become hungry and weak. And we are told that this wilderness into which he enters is filled also with wild beasts. 
Now, all throughout my young life, I went, I went camping and backpacking with my, with my friends and, and with my dad. It was just kind of part of, of the culture of growing up in East Tennessee. You just, you just went to the mountains and just camped, and it was, it was fantastic. But I remember that during the day, hiking through the mountains, it was, it was totally fine. You know, I was surrounded by my friends, or I was with my dad, and everything was, was, was pretty hunky-dory. I wasn't really afraid of anything coming to get me, but, but as soon as night fell, as soon as I put on my tent, and I got in my tent, and a few hours went by, and I heard a snap of a twig, or the rustle of a bush, immediately I was surrounded by predators. <laughs> I was terrified. But I think that the majority of the, of the wild beasts that were surrounding me in my tent or more than likely in my head, where they were in my head. They were just a product of my imaginations. But the wild beasts that were surrounding Jesus, not just a figment of his imagination, or of Mark's imagination. They were very real. The danger that Jesus was in was very real. But in the wilderness with Jesus was actually one particular creature that was far older and far more terrifying and far more dangerous than any beast that even my own imagination could dream up. It was a creature that could one day be in the form of a serpent and the next disguise himself as an angel of light. And I am, of course, talking about the great adversary, the, the prince of the domain of darkness, Satan was lurking in the wilderness, waiting for Jesus to become brittle, to become weak. And Mark tells us in verse 13 that there was, there was this great clash between Jesus and Satan. A time where Satan approached Jesus and tempted him while his human nature was in this weakened state. Now, in the other Gospels, we are given a, a much more detailed version of this temptation that Jesus suffered through with his time with Satan in the wilderness. However, Mark does not add in those details. Instead, as, as is usually the case with Mark, we are, we are only kind of given the, the cliff note version of this account. And that, that's, that's somewhat how we're actually going to be approaching uh, this temptation of Jesus today as well. I will go over the temptations briefly, but I'm not going to dissect each and every single one in, in a lot of detail. It's a, it's a sermon I, I eagerly look forward to another time. But I, I definitely encourage you all to, to study Matthew 4 and Luke 4 at home because there's, there's so much to take away in the temptations of Jesus. There's so much there. But right now, we want to answer the, the overall question, the overarching question of why. Why the temptation? Well, the first thing that you must understand about this is that while it may seem like that Satan was the mastermind behind the ambushing of Jesus in the wilderness while he was weak, in reality, this was actually a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment that was predestined to take place by the Father, and it was implemented by the Spirit. Because re remember who it was that brought Jesus into the wilderness in verse 12. It was the Spirit. 
It was the Spirit that drove him into this desolate wasteland. In fact, the word that Mark uses is the Greek word ekbalo. Ekbalo. And the only other place that Mark uses this word is when Jesus is casting out, is driving out demons. And so the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He didn't gently nudge him. He drove him there. He compelled him there for, for, for this meeting with the devil. Jesus was not, God was not taken by surprise. This was meant to happen. But again, why? Why? Why did God, the Father, sovereignly ordain it to be that His beloved Son would be compelled by the Spirit to partake in this temptation by the greatest of all deceivers? especially in the state that he was in. You would think that he would want him in, in tip-top notch, or tip-top shape. And this may, this may sound like somewhat of, of a joke, but, but when, when I am hungry, I'm like a sinning machine. <laughs> a sinning machine, and I, and I have to, and to, to think about even trying to fight back against any temptation when, when I would be starving like Jesus was starving here. Come on. There's no way. There is no way. And I know that some of you could, could relate <laughs> to me. Chris, I'm looking at you, man. <laughs> well, the short answer to the question of why. Why Jesus was driven into the wilderness was simply to be tested. He was to be tested. You see, for Jesus to truly live for us, he not only had to live out the perfect obedience to God, but he had to suffer through the temptations of the enemy that entices us every single day. And while this surely was not the only time in Jesus' life that he experienced temptation, in this scene in the wilderness, Jesus faced the full and concentrated temptations of Satan himself. And I'm personally convinced that, that even reading through all of the accounts of this temptation, we cannot truly grasp the intensity of what Jesus went through. Because if he, if he slipped even just once, if he allowed even just, just one of these temptations to gain even the slightest foothold in his heart, it would all be over. It would be done. Salvation, forgiveness, justification... Everlasting life, go away. It wouldn't be possible. And that was precisely the goal of Satan. Now, if you remember, we're actually given another famous account in the Bible where Satan personally came to tempt. In Genesis 3, we were given the account of, of that evil serpent infiltrating the Garden of Eden tempting Eve, and through Eve, her husband, Adam. Satan tempted them, again, if you remember, by convincing them to do what? Distrust the Word of God. Because he brought them a question. He posed a question to Eve. Did God really say did God really say to not eat of any tree in this garden? Is that what he said? And this distrust 
of the Word of God caused them to forget their identity. It caused them to forget their identity as children of God, and they attempted to forge new identities that was based not on the Word of God, but based on, on what? On the Word of the serpent. And they attempted to claim the identity of God himself, and so they fell into temptation and sin. Now fast forward a couple thousand years, and we actually see what I'm going to call an, an anti-parallel. I don't know if that's an actual term or not, but I'm just going to kind of go with it. But we see a, this anti-parallel to the account of Genesis 3. You see, where, where Adam and Eve were in paradise, Jesus was in the desert. Right? Where Adam and Eve were not alone, but they enjoyed companionship with each other, Jesus was alone with no other human being around him. And where Adam was full and surrounded by fruit-bearing trees and vegetables, Jesus was in a state of starvation. But Satan's goal was still the same. To tempt Jesus by distorting God's word and to get Jesus to doubt God's word and then getting him to forget his identity. Matthew 4, we see that in the first two temptations. Satan begins with this phrase, if, if you are the son of God. If you are the Son of God, then you can turn these stones into bread and end your hunger. If you are the Son of God, then simply throw yourself down from this temple. Because, because if you're the Son of God, it's prophesied that the angels will catch you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But that is only if you're the Son of God. And you know what, Jesus? I, I, I have my doubts. And on the last temptation, Satan tempts Jesus with power, saying that, that if Jesus were to just bow down to Satan, then he would give him all the kingdoms that he could see. Now, again, full sermons can be written on each one of these temptations and, and the implications and the applications of them. But for today, I want to, I want to focus. I want to kind of, kind of just laser in on Jesus' answer to the very first temptation. Because it is that answer that Jesus gives to that temptation that, that drives each of Jesus' answers to the other two temptations. So again, if you have your Bibles, look, uh, look at Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 4. And in them, Satan comes to Jesus and says that if you're the Son of God, then Jesus turned these stones to bread. Now, do you remember, do you all remember the very last words that the Father spoke to Jesus before the Spirit drove him into the wilderness? What was it that he said? You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So right from the get-go, Satan, just as he did in the Garden of Eden, he attempts to, to plant this seed of doubt in Jesus' mind by saying, did, did God really say? Did God really say that you are his beloved son? Or at the very least, did he really mean it? See, Satan wants Jesus, even, even just momentarily, to doubt the word of his father. 
And Christian, that is exactly how temptation grabs a hold of us in our own lives. Temptation is not simply an issue with your psyche. It's not. As Russell Moore puts it, we are not simply trying to overcome something about human psychology when it comes to temptation. No. We, like Jesus in this passage, are wrestling with cosmic powers, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. And elsewhere, elsewhere, Paul says that Satan is prowling around like a lion, just waiting to devour us. And he's whispering in our ears daily, even, even now, did God really say, did God really say that entertaining that fantasy in your mind is wrong? Did He really say that those images that you looked at on your phone are, are really all that bad? Or are those, those little white lies or, or not being honest to the customer service at Walmart or gossiping or, or whatever, is, did He really say that those things are wrong? Are you sure? Or, the enemy, our adversary, will say this. Did God really say that you, Christian, are really his child? Did he really say that you are loved by him? Did he really say that you are forgiven? Did he really say that you are a victor over sin? Because you know, I'm just not sure that that is really who you are. Because I know what you've done. And so, if that's not who you actually are, why not just give in a little? That is often how temptation starts. And we lose who we are. But I want you to look and how Jesus answers this first temptation of Satan in Matthew 4, 4. It says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in this response, Jesus is looking back. He's looking back to the last thing that he heard come out of the mouth of God the Father to that wonderful declaration that He truly is God's beloved Son. And Jesus essentially says to Satan, by quoting this Old Testament passage, Satan, I do not need to turn these stones into bread to prove to myself or to you that I am the Son of God. I heard it straight from my Father's mouth. And what's more is that I do not need to fill my stomach with bread to be fully satisfied. I get my satisfaction. I get my sustenance. I get my life from the Word of God alone. Amen. And Satan, I will cling on to what His Word says that I am. To who His Word says that I am. Not on who you are trying to convince me that I am. And this response... This, this utter reliance on the truthfulness of the Word of God informs Jesus' response to every other temptation that comes His way. And friends, this should inform our own response to the temptations that we face. 
We first overcome temptation by simply believing. By just believing what God's Word says that we are. By believing who God's Word says that we are. Galatians 3.26, In Christ you are all sons of God. 1 Peter 2.9, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a, a holy nation. You're a people for His own possession. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.37, and these things, we are more than conquerors in Him who loves us. That's who we are, church. That is who we are. And that's who you are because that is who this book says that you are. And that is just as real. And that is just as true. As if God opened up the heavens yet again and spoke it directly to you as he did at Jesus' baptism. This, this book is the Word of God. And you see, we're Adam, who was surrounded by paradise, surrounded by tame beasts, who had loving companionship, where, where he fell into temptation. The, the second Adam, as Hebrews calls him, the second Adam, Jesus, who is in the wilderness, surrounded by wild beasts, and was weak from lack of nourishment, stood in absolute victory over the tempestuous schemes of the devil. Where brokenness, sin, and death came into the world by Adam's failure, restoration, forgiveness, justification, and everlasting life came through Jesus' triumph. And friends, no matter how heinous, no matter, no matter how perverted, no matter how deep the temptations you face are, the way to overcome them is to remember your identity in Jesus. And to not live by the hungers of your flesh, but live by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. Friends, saturate yourself with His Word. Take it in. Let it, let it become a part of who you are. Read it and study it. Let, it. let it seep into your bones. As James 1.5 says, we need supernatural wisdom. Supernatural wisdom to see where temptation lurks. And so friends, we need to pray. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us through it all. And then when temptation comes, like Jesus in Matthew 4.10, we can, in the name of Christ, tell the enemy to be gone because we are what? We are lovers of God's Word, not the lies of the enemy. And so who are you going to believe when temptation comes knocking? Are you going to believe in whose God's word or who God's word says that you are? Are you going to believe in the lies of the enemy and who he says you are? Now, one last point about the temptation of Jesus before I close. You see, at the, at the core of the gospel message is, is Jesus, right? No, no surprise there. 
But it is Jesus who is tempted and tried in every way we are, but who was never anything but triumphant. How precious was and is the life of Jesus. Because, because of his suffering and because of his temptations, Hebrew 4 says that he is our, our perfect high priest. The one who can go between us and the Father. And because He is so intimately identified with us in every hardship of life, He can pray for us. And He can pray on our behalf to the Father. 1 John 2 says that is what He does. Jesus, the Son of God. God, the Son, prays for you. How beautiful is that? And because of that, we are able then to, as Hebrew 4 again informs us, with confidence, draw near to the throne room of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. All because Jesus not only died for us, but because he lived for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we just, we thank you, God. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to, to come here, Lord, and, and to come to this earth and not, not live in a palace, not live in, in comfort. Lord, but you, you chose to be, to be born in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals. And Lord, not only that, God, but, but you, Lord, you, you chose to, to deprive yourself of food for, for so long so that your the temptations that you faced could be, could be unlike anything that, that we have faced. That they could be more intense than, than even the most intense temptations that, that we have experienced in our own life all so that you could, Lord, stand victorious over temptation and, and through you, Lord, we can stand victorious over our own temptations in our own life. So Lord, we thank you, God, that you didn't just die for us, Lord, but you lived for us as well. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.